Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Good morning, Sojourn. It is good to be together again. My name is Matt Boyd. I'm the lead pastor here and the primary teacher and preacher. If you are new with us, we're glad that you have chosen to join us on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, It was great to be together last week in person. For those of you who were able to join us, it was just refreshing to actually not have to preach to a camera and actually to get to see one another. Let me reassure you on that note. We are being cautious. We believe we are using wisdom and seeking the Lord on how it is that we have reopened and are entering a new phase uh, when you look at the fact that schools have now reopened, uh, my students or my uh, boys actually started going in person, praise God, uh, just for a couple hours each day throughout the week. And the shot vaccine will be readily available as of uh, early as April 19th, which is just right around the corner. And cases are uh, in general pretty low. We believe that now is the time to work on reopening. What I mean by that, we never shut down, we never closed down, but regathering together in person as God's people. Uh, I want that to become the thing that we do as the primary place that we gather, whether it's inside the stamp building or outside the stamp building, depending on weather. And then we're going to use online primarily as just kind of a more of a backup. If you're sick or you're feeling down, we will add the online component there. But let's primarily get back to gathering together in person. Uh, I want to remind you that this is part of our ecclesiology. Part of being the church means that we gather as God's people And I believe as the one leading this church that we are at the right place, the right time. We have waited out the pandemic and waited out till the vaccine was readily available to get back together in person. Uh, On that note as well, we've talked about rebuilding this year. And by God's grace, he has brought us some new people. And there's some others who are expressing interest. But it's going to be hard for us to rebuild if they show up and there's not many people there. And so it's not necessarily about how many people are gathering, but the fact that they want to see that there's other people who have bought in who are part of this thing called Sojourn Church. So let me just encourage you, seek wisdom, uh, no judgment, which is actually what our sermon's on this morning, but just let me just encourage you to do what you can to gather with us week in and week out in uh, person as the people of God. We're picking back up in our series this morning, Kingdom Manifesto, where we have been studying the Sermon on the Mount since October. Yes, I know your thing is this the longest series that we've ever done. Most likely it is, but we did take a gap for Advent, New Year's, and then for Easter Sunday last week. But we're going to be picking back up in this sermon starting chapter 7 this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Once again, it's Matthew 7 verse 1. And this sermon, just to remind you, this is Jesus' signature sermon. This is the most famous sermon of all time. It's where he instructed his followers And these words were spoken 2,000 years ago, but what I have learned week in and week out is they're just as applicable to us today in 2021 as they were to his followers who are originally hearing his words as he preached them. Now we're coming to the point in the the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, or in other words, do not judge. Now, this is probably one of the most known and quoted verses by those who are outside of the church who aren't Christians, because they say this when Christians are speaking against some kind of sin in the culture, which we'll kind of see our cultural sins, and a lot of times they're politicized, and there's a vote, things happening, and this is how people who aren't Christians will respond. Doesn't your Bible teach, do not judge? I also see this often being quoted by marginal Christians, those who 
who kind of want to be a Christian, but not really. You don't see this as often out, or as common out here in the Pacific Northwest, but in the Southeast where I'm originally from, you see a lot of this. And a lot of times what it is is to justify my lifestyle. Hey, I want to still live that way, contrary to what God has taught me here in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, you know, when someone calls me out on that, I'm going to look at him and say, do not judge me. And that's, you'll kind of see it being used that way. I have a friend who is actively seeking a divorce. And I know the pastor of the church where this friend attends. And so not long ago, we had a, what I call a heart-to-heart, a pastor-pastor conversation. I said, let's, let's leave the friendship out of this. Let's just have a pastor-pastor, heart-to-heart conversation. And I just was asking, how are you walking this individual through this season of their life as they are seeking a divorce when to our knowledge, there is no biblical grounds for the divorce? Well, I was accused of being judgmental and accused of being not loving by this pastor. Sounds like quite the opposite to me. But I share this example because there are times that we are attempting to live as a biblically faithful follower of Jesus. And what comes back and what gets thrown in our face is that we get accused of being judgmental. We get accused of not being loving when we are doing this. And a lot of times it's not true. On the other hand, there's many times that many of us are doing this. Many of us are being judgmental and improperly judging on a variety of subjects. And so this morning what I want us to do, I want us to look again at the words of Jesus See what he says and what he means when he says, do not judge. And hopefully we leave here this morning looking more like Jesus. The temptation when hearing a sermon like this one, and you may have already thought this is, man, I really wish that some of these other people I knew in life were here to hear this sermon because I don't need it. There's other people in my life, they need to hear this sermon. Well, if that's your thought already, then you are probably being judgmental and you're right where you need to be to hear it this morning. But you might be thinking, man, I wish my roommate was here to hear this sermon. Or I wish my parents or my in-laws, they really need to hear this sermon. Or I wish my coworkers were here to hear this sermon. Or I wish my spouse were here. If they are here, you might be elbowing them and saying, I hope that they really listened up and are attentive this morning. But let me remind you, church, you are here. And my guess is that you are here for a reason. So let's all commit right now on the front end. Let's open our hearts, open our minds where we need the Holy Spirit to come in and to change us so that we can properly apply this message to our lives. Jesus is going to come in. He's going to warn us against inappropriate judging. Now, he does not assume that the Christian community is going to be perfect, for he knows that it will not be. But he's going to teach us how not to be hypocrites in our desires to live righteously. So let me pray for us. If you haven't already turned to Matthew 7, go ahead and do that, and then we'll dive into the text. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. Once again, another difficult passage for us to understand, probably even more difficult one for us to live out. So I ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts and our minds this morning and help us to leave this place this morning, applying this text where we can look more like Jesus and less like ourselves. In your name, amen. All right, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. It says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now it's important for us to remember who it is that Jesus is actually talking to here for his original audience. Yes, he's talking to us this morning, but in this context, he's actually talking to the Pharisees who were the Jewish religious leaders of the day. And Jesus actually had a really bad problem with these people because they were like the classic example of being self-righteous. The Pharisees thought they were experts. Some of you probably know those people. Maybe some of those people you wish were here this morning. The Pharisees thought they were experts on God's law. 
And they made it so where no one else could even attain to that law, that they could somehow follow it, but no one else could really live up to those standards. They developed their own interpretation that was extra biblical. And, and they looked down on others whenever they couldn't attain to this. So once again, it's classic self-righteousness. So Jesus had a really big issue with these people. But I fear more often than not that many of us, that you and me, look and reflect the life of the Pharisees more than we like to admit it. It's easy for us to point over there. It's easy for us to point our coworkers, our roommates, or our spouse, or our friends, or neighbors, and say, man, you are a Pharisee. But when the reality is, oftentimes we need to hold a mirror up to ourselves and go, man, I'm guilty of this myself, and I am living like a Pharisee. Why do you think this is one of the most often quoted verses by non-believers? Why is that? I think it's often because we address the sins of the world, we as the church, unlike Jesus did. We most often we address the world needs the sins of the world like the Pharisees. And so if you struggle with a judgmental spirit, and some of us do more than others, if you're struggling with self-righteousness, which we all do to a degree, that what we're going to see here is that oftentimes Christians are known to be quick to call out sin, the wrongs of others, but that we're quick to do it before we deal with our own junk, our own mess, that we have our own flaws in our heart, which is exactly what we see the Pharisees doing. And so I want us to figure out this morning, what did Jesus mean when he said to practice his ways and live like him? What did Jesus mean when he said, do not judge other people? You realize that's really, really hard. I mean, most of us do that constantly. If you think about it, like somebody walks up or somebody walks by you and you're judging the outfit that they're wearing. Or you see someone driving a car and you judge their car. Or you, you see someone's lifestyle that looks contrary to your lifestyle and you immediately judge them. Or someone votes differently and you immediately judge them. There's a lot of assumptions built into these. And so I want us to figure out what does it look like to actually live this out and to live it out the way that Jesus is instructing us here. And so it does say, do not judge. But the Bible also instructs us to speak out against injustices in society. And it actually tells us in other portions of Scripture that Christians are to judge within one another. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such one. So how do we live this out in light of Matthew 7? How do we balance these two? Do not judge, yet call our brothers and sisters into accountability we see in other parts of Scripture. Let's look at verse 1 again. It says, judge not that you be... What does he mean by do not judge? Think about a judge in a court of law, if you've ever been in court, or if you've ever watched Judge Judy or, or, or uh, Dateline or some kind of docu-series. We see that a uh, judge in a court of law decides whether someone is guilty or innocent, based on evidence. And Jesus is saying, don't put yourself in the position of a judge. That's not your position to be in. A judge who determines a guilt or innocent based on someone else's standard in your mind. He says, that is not your place, so do not put yourself in the place of judge. So a lot of us going around pretending that we're judges. And God says, you're not to be a judge. And what Jesus demands here, he demands for his disciples not to be judgmental or censorious, because the disciples who take it on himself to be the judge of what another does is taking the position of God. So if you think you are the judge, in essence, you're saying, I am God, and that I know God's standards, I know God's laws, and I know how to rule like God. Why shouldn't we be the judge? You might say, well, I study God's word. I've been following the Lord for a decade or more. Why shouldn't I be the judge? Our brother James reminds us in James 4, 12. He says, there's only one lawgiver and judge, he who was able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? And so God is the only one. 
It sounds kind of foolish when we say it out loud, but God is the only one who sees all the motivations of a man's heart. We can see the actions of a man, but we don't know the motivation of their heart. In other words, because you don't know everything, you're not to put yourself in the position of God. Scott McKnight, theologian, says, kingdom people are called to love, not to act the part of God. Thus, judging others is forbidden evaluation of other persons. It corrodes simple love. And so Jesus tells us the dangers of judging. If you look back at verse two, it says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so in other words, because you are not God, if you are judging and pretending that you're God, then he says that God will use that same measure you judge others to judge you. And since no human lives up to his or her own standard, and that, have you ever thought about that? Like you don't live up to your own standard. The standard you place over others, you don't even often live up to that standard. And so since no human lives up to his or her standard, that standard deconstructs a human's attempt to be God with others. And it says that God will be the final judge because God alone is the judge. Think about marriage for a minute. I know not everyone here is married, but quite a few of you are. And marriage and a spouse not being loving. So one day you, you accuse your spouse of saying, you are not being loving to me. And then this is what this passage tells us. If you make that accusation, if you make that judgment call, then you better make sure that you are loving your spouse the one who's making the accusation, because God is going to hold you accountable to the measure of judgment you just put on your spouse. And so a lot of times you need to stop before you say that. And that might be true. Your spouse may not be being loving. So it's not saying that we don't ever say that, but you need to first stop, pause, probably seek the Lord and do an inspection. But am I being loving? Or am I doing the very thing that I'm accusing them of doing? Am I not being, uh, am I being unloving to them just like I'm accusing them of being unloving to me? And so this should cause us a, a time to really pause. Think about our relationships. Think about even, maybe there's some things going on in your life right now with your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors. And think, man, I've accused them of things and those things are true, but I've also got things and, and th that I'm doing back to them. And it's actually the same thing. I think we see a lot of this right now in our politicized world, especially with social media. And I I've just found it healthier for me to stay off of it because I'll get in and I'll, have, I'll be having a great day or great time with the Lord, and then I'll, I'll look at Twitter and make that mistake, and it's just like, man, it just brings me down, because I see both sides on all kinds of things, and Christian social media is worse than just regular social media. Not that they're separate channels, maybe they are, I don't know about them, but just where you see all the bickering and fighting, and I'm like, this week I really want to post this verse. Hey, we all need to remind it, do not judge, and I thought, no, if I do that, it's going to get blow up, where everyone's going to go, well, you're judging all of us, you're judging both sides, but this should cause us to pause and ask, how often do we place judgment on others? when we ourselves aren't living up to the measure that we are expecting them to live up to as we judge them. Which is why Jesus says in verses four and three, or three and four, he says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is this log in your own eye? It's really funny imagery. You know, imagine like a speck of sawdust that's in our, our brother's eye and, and you go to try to get it out. And meanwhile, you've got this like two by four hanging out of your eye. But here's another reason that we are unfit to be judges. Not only because we are fallible human beings and not God, but also because we are fallen humans. That fall made us all sinners. We're all in the same boat. The only one who's not in the boat who is fit to be a judge is Jesus. And so we are in no position to stand in the judgment seat on our fellow sinners because we are disqualified from even sitting on the bench. And so Jesus here is teaching us the problem of judging other people is that we are quick to notice the flaws of others. We're quick to see that speck. We're quick to notice the wrong that someone else is doing. 
and the failures they might have in their life, when at the exact same time, it's possible and probable that we have something just as big, if not bigger, going on in our own lives. But we'll ignore all of that and what we're doing and focus on whatever's happening in their life. And Jesus coming in and saying, don't do that. We're quick to pass judgment on that mean coworker when at the same time, maybe we're being unloving to our spouse when we're at home or our roommate. We're quick to judge others who are greedy with their money, but at the very same time, we aren't any more generous with ours. We just have less of it. That doesn't mean that you're being generous. It means you're being just as greedy. We're quick to look down or pass judgment on someone who commits adultery. Meanwhile, you might be mired in pornography. We're quick to pass judgment on those who are destroying the Imago Day of the unborn, but we're slow to pass judgment on those people who are abusing the Imago Day of color. We're quick to pass judgment on those who are racist, but we're slow to keep our mouth shut on people advocating for the death of the unborn. You see the point here. Both sides are bickering and yelling and judging back and forth, but we're, we're quick to be dismissive and or permissive of our, of our own junk and our own things. It's just kind of like we kind of nitpick and we pick and choose. And Jesus is saying, when you're doing this, when you have stuff in your own life, in your own heart that you need to deal with, this is being a hypocrite. This is called hypocrisy. And this is what the Pharisees are doing. He's saying, don't do it. Do not judge. Look back at verse four and then we'll continue in verse five. It says, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, if you have a judgmental spirit towards a person or a group of people in your life, at the same time when you're not meeting God's standards yourself, you're being a hypocrite. Do not judge. Now, Jesus clearly says, do not judge. But at the same time, over and over again in different portions of the Bible, we are called as Christians to address the sins in other believers. So you might be confused right now to go, well, how do I do that without judging or without it coming across as judging? But we're called to fight for the purity of the church. And it tells us over and over again to fight for the, against the injustices in our culture. So how does this work? Does do not judge mean never to challenge an unloving or an unfaithful spouse? Does do not judge mean that you never fight against abortion or racism? Does do not judge mean that we never engage sin or wrong because we don't want to be called be judges or hypocrites? The answer is actually no. The Bible is crystal clear that we are to do all of those things. But what Jesus is getting there is the heart of how we actually go about this. It's the heart and the posture. But we need to do them. Jesus says, yes, you are to do them. You're instructed in other portions of scripture to do these things, to call these things out, to not stand for these injustices. But when you do them, it's about your heart and your posture to do them in a non-judgmental, God-like way, which is really, really hard. If we're honest, remember this whole idea of the Sermon on the Mount is countercultural, and this is countering. It's counter. It's countercultural, but it's also like it's just opposite of how we naturally want to operate. It's it's not how our our flesh naturally wants to to live this out. And so it's like, how do you balance this? How do you do this? How are we non-judgmental but call out sins and injustices in the world? And how do we do that in a way that honors God without being a hypocrite? Now Jesus was later to teach. He says that if our brother sins against us. Our first duty, although this is often the one that's neglected, is to go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So you might have that person in your life this morning, you're thinking, man, I wish they were here, or you know that you've got this fault against them or you're judging. Jesus would tell you, go to them. And so that, that might be one of your, we don't always leave and say, here's your three things you go and do now. But one of those things is you might pick up the phone or you might go grab coffee, the person who lives locally. 
and say, man, I've got this thing against you and I just, I just want to clear the air. That's what Jesus instructs us to do. Again, it's evident that Jesus is not condemning criticism as such, but rather the criticisms of others when there is no exercise, no comparable self-criticism, nor correlation as such, but with the corrections of others when we have not first corrected ourselves. So once again, Scripture is not telling us not to go to our brother who's in sin, not to, like I had that heart to heart with that pastor. Scripture is not telling me not to do that, but saying, how am I going about that? How is it that we are doing those things? And that we need to be as critical of ourselves and our own sin and as generous to others when we, as we are to ourselves. So in other words, it does say that we can go to our brother, but first you expect your own life. And just as you would want someone to be generous to you and use grace and mercy with you, that is what you need to extend to the other people that you oftentimes want to be quick to judge. And so Jesus is not calling us here to a, a blanket uh, society of tolerance or moral indifference. That's what our society is telling us. That's what our culture and Portland would tell us. But Jesus is not saying that we have to be this blanket society of tolerance or moral indifference. Instead, what he's doing is he's reaching in forward into the age to come. And he's pulling it back into the present for his followers. Scott McKnight, once again, he points out this passage has what he calls human proclivity and Christian tendency. Let me explain. The proclivity piece. As humans, that's all of us, whether you're Christian or not, as humans, we have a proclivity to judge, especially if they know God's will for society and have a zeal for God's glory. But Jesus urges us to posture ourselves as God's citizens in his kingdom, not as God. We are first to examine our own lives. Invite the presence of the Holy Spirit to inspect your heart. Make peace with God and then strive to see the sins of others that you can respond to them in a way of love, justice, and peace. So instead of the proclivity to be God, we are called to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. It's about self-awareness. It's about other awareness and it's shaped by having God awareness. Because when we peer into our own hearts, when we see what our hearts truly look like, we will have a sufficient cause or even a laughable, ridiculous cause to see our own sin and be humble before God. Imagine if you just stopped and paused and you just looked at your own life and, and, and ways that you sinned in the last week before you call out other sins, before you go to them. It's almost laughable when you can realize, man, I've got all this junk that I wouldn't want anyone else to see laid out there on the table. And here I am throwing rocks and stones and wanting to judge others because I can see theirs. And that this will lead us to self-awareness and other awareness that our fellow disciples and humans, that they're all like us. That every single one of us are in this equal standing as being sinners in need of mercy and grace and forgiveness and patience. That's where every single one of us is in that same boat. And really the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that we recognize that. And that we've recognized that our, our, our need for Jesus, what we celebrated last week in the resurrection, that that's our only hope. And so if you're with us this morning and you say, man, I, I, I don't know where I stand. Well, the reality is you stand where we all stand, guilty before God, but that God has offered his grace and mercy to us. And so if you aren't a Christian this morning and you want to embrace that, please let us know. We'd love to walk you to how you can embrace Jesus. The second thing is tendency. Christians tend to be harder on fellow Christians than on others. And this can sometimes breed suspicion of one another in judgmentalism. What happens when we come down from the throne and we stop acting like we are God and we learn to love others and, and receive others as recipients of God's grace and forgiveness? When you're reminded, man, this person needs forgiveness. They need to repent. But then you're reminded that I needed to repent and I needed forgiveness as well. This is the kind of grace that we're called to extend to others. I think a lot of times that we are grace hoarders. If you're watching the show Hoarders, 
I don't know, I get entertainment out of that, which is probably really sad and probably judgmental of me. So, um, but I think about, about grace. When we get grace, it's like we want to hoard it. It's like we want to put it in a bottle and, and put a, a cap on it. And just say, man, I've got this grace. And then we, get, we go around others and we kind of judge them. But no, this grace, which is abundant and lavish that we've received, that we are ex- to extend that grace to other people as well. A pastor and author, Michael uh, Cheshire, tells a story about encountering someone that had a very known platform and a very public sin. So some of you will recognize this person's name and some of you won't because it's, it's probably a little dated for some of us. But this is about Ted Haggard. Ted Haggard was a, a really known pastor, had, like I said, a pretty large platform and he had a, a fall from ministry, so to speak. And so uh, Michael, this pastor, he says, I didn't plan to care about Ted Haggard. He said, I heard about what he did and I knew it was wrong. Honestly, I felt bad for him and figured it was his own undoing. When the topic would come up with others in ministry, we would express our sadness. But inside, we, wouldn't care, we couldn't care less. One close friend of mine, he would understand if it were more if Ted had just sinned with a woman. And so I'll just say that his, his sin had involved not just a woman, but had, had involved a man. And this pastor, I agreed with him at the time. And wants to hold on to this one. He said, it's amazing how much more mercy I give to people who struggle with sins I understand. And write that one down. That's not my quote. This is from this, this, this pastor, Michael. So it's amazing how much more mercy I give to people who struggle with sins I don't understand. And he says, the further their sin is from my own personal struggles, the more judgmental and callous I become. But all that changed in one short afternoon. You see, Michael had encountered the, the harsh judgmentalism that the Christian community can express towards one another. And so he would have conversations with other Christians, some, oftentimes with other leaders. And, and one day he had a qu- uh, conversation with those who wasn't a guy who wasn't a Christian. And he said, Mike, you know one reason I'm not a Christian? You know the biggest reason I'm not a Christian? He said, why is that? He said, because Christians tend to eat their own. That really began to work on Michael's heart and soften his heart. And so he says, I began to distance myself from my previously harsh statement. And I tried to understand what Ted and his family might have been going through. He said, I arranged a meeting with him because we lived in the same state. In less than five minutes of talking with Ted, I realized a horrible truth. I liked him. He was brutally honest about his failures and he was excited that the only people who would talk to him now were truly broken and hurt. I also got to meet his wonderful wife, Gail. She's a terrific teacher of grace and one of my heroes. But the funniest thing started happening, Michael recounts. He says, I continue to build a relationship with Ted. Other Christian leaders in my life, as they found out about it, started distancing themselves from me. And they said, if you don't quit hanging out with Ted, we're no longer can be friends. We can no longer associate with you. We can no longer get together. Several people even came to this pastor and said, I'm going to leave your church if you do not quit this relationship. So Michael says, I thought, really? I mean, does he have leprosy? Will, will he infect me? We're, we're friends here. But in the end, I was told that my voice as a pastor and author would be tarnished if I continued to spend time with him. I found this sickening. Ted and Gail had lost most of their friends at this, his fall, and now the Christian machine was trying to take away their new friends. It would do all Christians good. This is Michael's advice to us to watch the Band of Brothers documentary over a weekend, which I've never actually got to watch the full thing, but after reading this story this week, maybe we want to watch it. He said, write down the words that you see in this documentary of, or this, this series of loyalty, of friendship and sacrifice, and truly try to understand the phrase, never leave a fallen man behind. Michael finishes, he says, in many ways, I have not been aggressive enough with the application of the gospel. My concept of grace needed to mature, to grow muscles and, and teeth. 
And we need to learn that we are not the judge. That God extends us grace and that experience of grace leads us to extend grace to others. What a powerful story. What a powerful testimony of how he was quick to judge and then he sat across from the person at the table and realized, I like this individual. And my struggles and my sins may not look like theirs, but I've got my own. And I think a lot of discipleship, we talk about this at Sojourn a good bit. One of our biggest discipleship and evangelism tools, when, when people ask me that, like, what, what's discipleship and evangelism look like? I said, well, it's being intentional with our lives, but honestly, it's sitting down at a table. It's having coffee. It's having lunch. It's having dinner. It's having a cookout in my backyard. We get to join others and get to learn their story and hear their stories. It's quick to judge when, you know, from afar, especially in this case of a public figure. But as he sat down and realized this person was broken over their sin and needed the same grace that they needed and that he needed as well. And so how then are we to engage in a culture without falling in hypocrisy ourselves? Many of us see this passage and, or many people read this and they'll say that we're supposed to take the high road. Say, I'm not the judge. But if that is your stance, you might be missing the whole point of Jesus' words because it's this balance, it's this, this tension of having to seek the Lord to live this out properly because sin is sin. And one cannot follow Jesus and turn a blind eye to sin. It tells us that in scripture. And so he's not calling us to this absent moral discernment. Instead, he is calling us not to assume and he's calling us not to condemn as if we were taking on the role of God because that's We are to discern things morally. We're to inspect ourselves first and to repent of our own sins. And then we are to speak the truth about our sins. And so once again, this is not saying don't confront people. This isn't saying have an accountability. But what it is saying is inspect your own life first. Repent of your own sin first and be at a proper place full of the Holy Spirit so that when you go to that person, it's clear that you're not coming as one who is judging. We, these are not damnations, but these are discernments as our brother James tells us in chapters three and four. We see that Jesus both rebuked his followers and then he forgave them. And then he called them to the path of discipleship. And we are to do the same. When we fail, we are to confess our sins and then we are to get back up and to follow Jesus. That's that journey that we're inviting everyone on here at Sojourn, that journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus and to follow him faithfully. And part of that journey is that we all will sin. You're gonna sin this week, I guarantee it. But when you sin, confess your sin, get back up and continue on that journey of following Jesus. Now the church historically has always taught confession of sins before God and one another, but this should be done in such a way that we humbly grow together in love of God and one another. And that's done such a way to grow in holiness and, and justice and to become a society marked by an authentic honesty and genuine growth. Church, that is what I want for us. I want us to provide an atmosphere with it, that we really do welcome all people. That, that, that Jesus says, come to me as you are. And once again, that we're inviting people on this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. But I also want to create an atmosphere where we can confess our sins to God, but also we can confess our sins to one another. Not so that we can judge you, not so that we can get a circle around and talk about you and gossip about you, but that so that we can extend the same grace that's been extended to us and that same grace that we're called to extend to the city of Portland, to our nation, to our world. As I pointed out at the beginning of verse one, at the beginning, verse one is one of the most quoted verses by those who are outside of the church, outside of faith. And studies reveal that many people don't care for Christians or the church, not because they reject Jesus, because they're rejecting Christians. And the reason is that they perceive that we're judgmental. So there's two things I'd like to say to that. First, we need to confess our sin of standing in judgment toward others. We do. Church, we often are, at times are guilty. The, the, the big C church, not just sojourn, although we're part of that. We're often guilty of what the world accuses us of. And so once again, we invite 
Sojourn exists to invite the city of Portland to journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus, but we need to start sometimes repenting of where we have been judgmental towards others. Second, much of this perceived judgment by the church is because, I want you to hear this, because Christians read the Bible. Hopefully you do. If you're not, I would say, hey, I'm not judging you, but please read the Bible. But much of this because we read the Bible and we seek to practice the ways of Jesus and following him faithfully, which means that we're going to have convictions that lead us to conclude that some things are wrong, okay? We, and we are too. If you, if you didn't think anything was wrong, then you're probably not reading the Bible. Things like gossip and greed and adultery and divorce and practicing sexual immorality. It's one thing to be judgmental, which the world is accusing us of, which oftentimes we are guilty of. It is one thing to be judgmental, but it's entirely different to say that greed or sexual sins are wrong and saying so is not being judgmental. That's what our society wants to tell us. That's what Portland wants us to believe, that if we, if we declare anything is sin, is wrong, that we are being judgmental. But this is simply an act of intolerance on the part of those who are outside of the church and for those who think that something is wrong, that many in our culture think is none of their business. So once again, it's this careful balance. Hopefully I articulated that for you clearly, that it's okay that we say sin is sin and that we call it out but that we do it in a way that is loving, that we do it in a way that says, but I've also got sin, that we do it in a way that also says, but Jesus has a place for you and that you're welcome in his family. You know, you think about sin and when someone comes to Christ, we want to clean them up right away, right? We want to put on a brand new outfit, new clothes, and thankfully we've gotten away from this in the city of Portland, but not that you shouldn't, you know, want to give your best to God, but I think historically or traditionally, that, you know, where I grew up, that's why everyone wore suits and ties and all that to church, but it's like you can wear whatever you want and look great and clean and put on an act, but God really wants to change your heart. And for some, it does happen overnight, but for most of us, it doesn't. That's just that journey. That's this process we call sanctification. And so a lot of times we go, man, well, they were living this way. We want them now to live this way. And yes, this is the goal, but you know what? You're probably not there either. You're somewhere along the way. And so it's this, this thing called the Holy Spirit that God has given every single one of us. So I'm not saying that we just let people continue down this path of instruction. We help guide them and point them in a non-judgmental way, but realize it's going to be a process. You know, a lot of times people say, well, how do you address you know, certain sins? I say, one, we preach about the word, we study about it, we talk about it in our gospel community or the time of accountability in our tables. But a lot of times I have to realize and I have to trust in the Holy Spirit. They've got the same Holy Spirit that you and I do. And if they really are following Jesus and, and attempting to follow him faithfully, that their conviction is going to come in, they're going to repent of that sin. Let, let, let's let God be the judge. Let God be the one who changes them ultimately, not you and I. So how then are we to engage in culture without falling into hypocrisy? We need to consider others better than ourselves, as Philippians 2, 3 tells us. Only when you realize that your sins are just as bad as anyone else, that's when you'll be able to respond this way. That's when you'll be able to respond in a spirit-filled way. So the first way we're to do this is to consider others better than ourselves by looking at the cross and remembering that Jesus had to die for you too. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for the white supremacists, but he also died on the cross for you. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for abortion doctors, but he died for you and for me. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for your unloving spouse, but he died on the cross for you and for me. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for pastors with really bad theology, and but he died for the, the young, arrogant pastors who have really good theology or think they have really good theology. Jesus died for you and for me and for all of the world. Another way that we do this is before you challenge another person's sin, first ask God to reveal your sin and repent of it. Matthew 7, 5 says, do you see what Jesus is saying here? He's actually saying it's okay to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's saying that you should. It doesn't say don't take the brother's speck out of your brother's eye. It says first take the big two by four out of your own eye. Take that out. Deal with your junk. 
Get right with God, then go and say, hey, brother, let me help you. You got this little speck in your eye. I mean, you should have seen my job. My stuff was big. Yours is small, but I want to help you get that out. And doing this creates empathy with the person. As you deal with your own junk, as you deal with your own ongoing sin and struggles, it creates empathy. You begin to see yourself in them. You begin to see yourself in the other person's sin. I think about my children. Once again, I love my three boys and they're all so, so different. But a lot of times what frustrates me most about my boys is when they're doing wrong. A lot of times what frustrates me most about my boys is is when they're, they're doing some kind of sin. But here's the reality. I learned this really early on as a father. I thought, man, those are the sins I struggle with. Those are the, or those are the things that I did as a kid. And I was, man, I'm just as guilty of those things. And they love to call me out on it too. But mom, dad did it. But mom, dad said it. But mom, dad, you know, modeled this in a, in a poor way. And so when we go to others, start to see yourself in them. Empathize with their sin, their struggle. And maybe something you say, I've never, I've never struggled with that. I get that. I get that. I do. But imagine if you did. Imagine if it was something that you struggled with. And that when you go to that person, you can go to them and do it out of love rather than hypocrisy. And finally, let's look at one final story of how Jesus and the Pharisees responded to the woman caught in adultery. You don't have to turn there, but John 8, verses 2 through 11. It says, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? This they said to him to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. So we see this example that Jesus and the Pharisees, they both engaged with this woman's sin. The Pharisees responded with rocks. They wanted to stone her and they wanted to to damn her and judge her. And Jesus responded with kindness and mercy and grace. I don't know what Jesus wrote in the ground. It doesn't tell us, but maybe he wrote something like, do not judge. Or maybe he wrote, Grace works wonders. Church, do we stand against injustices and sin in the world? Yes. Do we fight for purity in the church? Yes, we do. But we want to do it the way that Jesus did. And that we remember that grace works wonders. So church, let me pray for us to that end. God, we come to you again as we've looked at a really difficult passage. God, oftentimes we want to play the place of you. God, we want to play the place of being a judge. God, but we've been reminded this morning that's not our place. Our place is as fellow strugglers. Our place is as fellow beggars on this this journey of learning what it means to follow and follow you faithfully. God, we, we want to live this. We want to practice your ways, not our ways. God, help us with your spirit to understand the balance and the tension between not coming across as judgmental and as a hypocrite, but also calling out sin when there's sin in, in someone's life and, and being loving though and just being reminded and pointing each other to the cross of Jesus. God, we thank you for this message. I pray that we would be able to leave this place and sign off of, of watching it online and be able to live it out this week. It's in your name, Jesus, and by your power we pray. Amen. Amen, church. 
Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.